This morning we will be looking at the end of chapter 5 of Luke's Gospel, verses 27 to 39. If you would please give attention to the reading of the Holy Word of God. The Word of the Lord is completely without error. The Word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the Word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, it will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he says, the old is good. Change is something that we all experience, isn't it? It's not something, though, that often that we are ready for. Sometimes we think that change will come to us and really not mean much. But when real change comes to us, it affects the way we think. It affects the way we operate. It affects our outlook on life. I remember as we were approaching the day of our wedding, I was thinking to myself, this will be easy. I've got this figured out. I've thought about this. I've got some categories. This won't be a big deal. And of course, I was wrong. And then the next stage of life comes when you find out that you're about to have a child. You read all sorts of books and you have these kind of conversations that about-to-be parents have with veterans. And you say things like, well, I think this this will be pretty easy. I think I know exactly what we'll do with our child. He'll do this. He'll do that. 
We'll plan this out. It'll work just according to plan. Then reality comes. Then the stage where your children begin to go to school and you think, I have everything mapped out. My child is five and I know what kind of job they're going to get and what they're going to major in in school. All they got to do is follow the plan. And then reality comes in quick, right? This is what happens to us. You see, change comes to us and in a very real way, in a much more important way spiritually than in the examples of life I've given, we must be ready for real change, we must be accepting of real change, and we must be focused on the change that Jesus brings into our lives. Because being a Christian, following the Lord Jesus Christ, having faith in Jesus does not mean simply you add something on to your life. It means Everything about you changes. Your desires, your parenting, your work. Everything that you do changes because Jesus changes you. And so this morning I'd like us to see two things about the change that Jesus brings that is evident here in our passage. The first thing is that we see we must be changed. It is not enough to simply tinker around the edges and to try and be culturally civil or Christian. We must be changed. And the second thing that we see is that as we are changed, that change must be real. It must affect who we are. It shows itself in our life and in our words. Are you ready for real change this morning? Because that's what Jesus brings to you. And the first thing that we must acknowledge is, is that we must be changed. And Jesus gives us a wonderful example of this through our beloved friend Luke. Verse 27, Jesus, after this, went out. Now, don't lose the words here at the beginning. After this, that is, Jesus is simply going about and doing what he does every day. But we have to remember that what Jesus does every day, an ordinary day for Jesus, is healing the sick and saving the lost and turning lives around. That's an ordinary day for Jesus. And so on this ordinary day, he walks over and he sees a tax collector named Levi. You may know him better as Matthew. He wrote the first gospel. Now, you have to understand what is meant by here, Levi the tax collector. Some of you have in mind a particularly grumpy IRS agent with a bad black clip-on tie and a pocket protector and a pencil that he taps. He's annoying. You don't want to do this. You hate audits. The people of Israel would have loved, loved to have had the IRS abuses that we have seen in the last year. They would have jumped for joy. Because you see, a tax collector in those days was a private contractor. They weren't even a government employee. They went out and they bid on the taxes for a region. So they would say, I will pay $2 million 
for the tax collections in Katy. Someone else might say, no, I will bid $2.1 million. And whenever they got to the top, the Romans would say, sold, go ahead. And they would pay over the money, and then the tax collector's job was to go and collect the taxes. And in doing so, he had to recover all of the money that he put out. But he's a businessman. So it's not just to recover. It's to make a profit. And it's not just to make a small profit. It's to make a large profit. And so he would squeeze people. He would. Part of the job description was, could you be a liar and a cheat? And what would make it worse is, it was typically someone from the community who had bid on the job to the Romans. So you can imagine, if you're an Israelite, it's bad enough for the Romans to take your money. But at least they're the Romans, and you can kind of hate them at a distance. Now the guy from down the street is working for the Romans, he's meaner than the Romans, and he's robbing you blind. Doesn't sound like the kind of guy you'd invite out for coffee or lunch, is it? Levi sitting at this booth in a public way. He is despised by everyone around him. No one wants to talk to him. No one wants to look at him. He's a traitor. They actually had a term for this. They were unclean because he dealt so much with Gentiles. No one wanted to touch him or the things he touched lest they become unclean. Levi is the scum that scum don't like. And Jesus walks right up to him. Jesus takes the initiative because Jesus is about his mission. He sees Levi and he approaches him. Think about the risk to Jesus. Jesus, good rabbi, what are you doing talking to this scumbag? You know he's cheating. You know he's lying. You know he's hurting people. You know he's shaking down grandmas. But Jesus sees the need. And he's not afraid. And he goes right out and approaches Levi. Levi is sitting there clueless. He doesn't even have a clue as to the depth of his need. But Jesus does. And he is the one who approaches him. Here's your first challenge. Are you willing to follow Jesus? There are people all over Houston that are despicable, dirty, filthy in their sin, say things you would not want your children to hear, do things you would not want to see, and they have no clue how lost they are. Are you willing to approach them? Because they're not going to come to you. When was the last time you saw a depraved sinner wallowing in his sin, walk up and say, you know, I was thinking about maybe that I needed to read the Bible and be saved. I don't see those kind of evangelism opportunities. You need to approach them. You need to enter into their lives. That's what Jesus does. And what we see here is a picture of salvation. A picture of the salvation of wicked sinners. You and me. Who takes the initiative here? Does Matthew choose to follow Jesus? No. Out of all of the people around, Jesus says, Levi will be my disciple. 
Jesus chooses Levi. This is divine election. Levi has a need. Jesus knows the need. And Jesus enters into his life, chooses him. And then he begins to call him. This is what we call effectual calling. Now, there is a call that goes out hither and yon. As you go and work and are in your communities, I hope and pray that you speak to others of what Jesus has done for you and how God is merciful. But that is a general call to everyone that we are called to make. But God knows exactly those who are His. And when that call goes out to one of God's children, they must respond. There is nothing good in Levi to merit this call. The call simply comes to him. And look how simple it is. Jesus walks up to him and he says, follow me. He doesn't try and tell Levi of all the benefits that will come to him. He doesn't try and excuse the life that Levi has lived by saying, oh, I know you've had a rough upbringing. Your environment is hard. He simply says, follow me. And against all common sense, what does Levi do? He gets up and he follows. Now, when you read this short passage, do you miss the miracle in that? Here is someone who might be the equivalent of a millionaire who's got the best business you could possibly have. Your business is to grab onto money and you've got Roman muscle behind you. He's probably sitting there at a table with gold coins everywhere. He has made it. He is rich as can be, but lost as can be. And Jesus says, simply follow me and Levi leaves everything behind. He hears this call. And you see, this is how the change is seen in us. God comes and enters into our life in Jesus Christ. And He calls us to Jesus. But we respond because you see, that call is effectual. It does not come from us. But it is what God works in us. If you trust the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, you have to know that being elect does not save you, Presbyterians. It is having faith in Christ that saves you. Now, you cannot have faith lest God give it to you by His gift and call you, but you must exercise. You cannot live in theory. You must follow Jesus. As simple as that sounds. And remember what Levi had to do. He had to leave behind his entire life. That's called repentance. Specifically, repentance unto life. He had to leave behind his sin. Now, I know I told you that people didn't like Levi. I know I told you that he was hated in the community. But you have to understand, he left behind some good stuff. He had the equivalent of a good car, a good house. He had money to burn. He had good clothes. He had power over people. And he left all of that behind just to follow Jesus. Jesus didn't tell him, follow me and I'll make you rich. 
Jesus didn't tell him, follow me and I'll make you healthy. Jesus didn't tell him, follow me and you'll have your best life you could ever imagine. He said, follow me. And Levi did. Are you ready to leave behind your life? Are you ready to leave behind the sin that is in your life? The sin that so easily besets you. Are you ready to follow Jesus? Because you see, Levi acts. He leaves everything behind. And in a very vivid way, Luke describes it to us. He rises up. He rose up. And he followed Jesus. That's a picture of what saving faith looks like. He got up from out of his life of misery and sin, and he said, I don't know where Jesus is going to take me, but I'm following Jesus. Is that what you think? Where's Jesus going to take you? Is he going to take you to Dallas? To California? To New York? To wealth? To poverty? To a huge family? To no children? Where's Jesus going to take you? The answer, my friends, is not to worry about it. Don't worry about the end. Don't focus on what Jesus can do. Focus on Jesus. He's in control. And you see, what happens is, Levi has been called by Jesus. He repents and has faith and he acts and he does what a follower of Jesus does. He throws a party. Now, there's something in this. You see, the very first thing that Levi wants to do is to be with Jesus and to honor Him as the guest of honor. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's not about getting out of hell. It's not about having a good marriage. It's about seeing Jesus and desiring Him to be lifted up before all. For Him to get all of the glory. Are you willing for Jesus Christ to be glorified if it means your eternal damnation? You see, that's the kind of thinking we have to have. Jesus is all in all. And Levi does this, and he throws this party. And then he does something else that Christians are supposed to do. He invites a whole bunch of fellow scumbags. A whole bunch of fellow sinners. The Pharisees don't like that. Why are there, why are all these tax collectors and sinners here? And you see, if Levi were speaking, he might just say, well, Josiah needs to hear about Jesus. He's just like I was. Don't you know that? Rachel needs to hear about Jesus. She's just like I was. All of my friends, they need to hear about Jesus. You see, that's what drives a disciple of Christ. We want others to know what Jesus has shared with us. We're called by Jesus. We are given faith and repentance by Jesus and we act and then we become His disciple and in following Him we witness and testify. And we see here that this change is absolutely necessary. And the Pharisees help us to see this. You know, as we read the Gospels, we tend to be annoyed with the Pharisees. 
Why are they there? Why can't we just cut them out of the picture? Why can't Jesus go someplace so we don't have to listen to them? And the good news is the Pharisees are there to point out for us what we need to think about and understand. And so they begin under their breath, grumbling. The Greek word for that is, it's gunguzo. Gunguzo. I mean, the sound of it, right? And this is the same word that's used in the Old Testament about the murmuring and the complaining of the Israelites. So here, those who know their Bible best are repeating Numbers 14. They're repeating sections of Exodus. They don't even know it. They're murmuring and they're complaining. And you can imagine this. Anyone who has ever lived in a house with a teenager knows exactly what this is. Right? Because, let's be honest, when six-year-olds don't like things, they go, I don't like it, real loud. When a teen doesn't like something, they go, oh, miserable, you stupid. Right? Under their breath. But you know it's there, and that's what they're doing. They're grumbling, they're complaining, they're murmuring, and then they go after the disciples. You'll notice they don't even approach Jesus. They say to the disciples, why do you eat with these tax collectors and sinners? Why are you doing this? Don't you know you're supposed to be only around nice people like us? And you see, the heart of it here is this. What they're saying is, Jesus shouldn't be around sinners. Therefore, we're not sinners. Why can't you be not a sinner like us? That's what they're saying. And you see, Jesus' answer is so appropriate. He looks at them and he says, you're absolutely right. I am with sinners. And I almost... The Bible is full of some humor and irony. I almost imagine our Lord looking at them and saying, yeah, I'm with sinners like you. They wouldn't like that. You see, there is an obvious truth that Jesus says, sick people need a doctor, not well people. That's why I'm here. But you see, the not so obvious truth is that there is none who is righteous. No, not one. Do you want to know what the percentage of sinners is here in this room with us? It's 100%. We all need Jesus. And you see, this is what Jesus says to them. There is hope. There is hope for the sick because He is the doctor. And some people don't even know they're sick. And His job is to go out of His way and to tell them that they are sick. This is Jesus' Purpose, not ours. This is change that we must have. And the second thing we see is that this change must be real because the Pharisees do not give up so easy. I kind of have a picture in my mind of the Pharisees that's similar to Wiley e. Coyote. They just never seem to get up, give up. They just go from one bad tactic to another. Well, they've gone to Jesus and said, why are you even eating with these folks? And so now they take another tactic. They say, well, if you're going to eat with them, why are you even eating? Why are you at the party, Jesus? Don't you know what good God-fearing people do? They walk around with a scowl on their face. And when you, when 
you're a good God-fearing person and someone asks you, why do you have a scowl on your face? You say, because I'm working very hard for God. Mm. It's hard to be good for God. Do you know all the things I gave up last week? It's hard. You should work harder for God too. You're too happy. Get grumpier. It's kind of like the opposite of the song, right? Don't worry, be grumpy. That shows that you are somehow working harder for God. And they would do this. They would fast and pray. And you know what it's like when you fast, when you don't eat, when you skip a meal. Your stomach starts to grumble and you get a little bit irritable, right? Ladies, you know when your husband's missed a meal or two, it's not good to kind of poke at him. Well, they would go to the next step. They would get the equivalent of old makeup and put it on their face so they looked even sicker than they felt. So they could look like they were really miserable. That's how you could tell how godly you were. The worse you looked, the more godly you were. That was their mechanism. Because it was all about how hard am I working for God. And Jesus looks at them and he says, real change in your life brings joy, not grumpiness. You don't understand what it means to follow the Lord. You see, at their heart, they wanted to be self-righteous. They wanted to be seen for what they could do. And that was their rule. And Jesus says to them, this is like a wedding. Now, Jesus uses illustrations that we all understand. You don't have to raise your hands, but almost all of you all have been at a wedding. And you know what it's like. It's fun. Everyone's smiling. Everyone's eating. Everyone's enjoying themselves. It is a grand time. And even the Pharisees liked a good wedding. They actually made up a rule that you could break the rule that they made of fasting during the wedding. And a Jewish wedding, oh my, whole week long, if you can imagine that, during the whole week, the bride and the groom were the king and the queen. And all they did was feast and dance and laugh and rejoice. And the Pharisees understood that. And Jesus says, when I bring salvation here, it's like a wedding. You should rejoice. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, you should be the happiest person in your neighborhood. You should not be afraid of the IRS or afraid of the Crimea or afraid of financial ruin, or afraid of sickness, because you know your life is secure in Jesus. He's in control. And so you can be joyful in the midst of difficult circumstances. Now, that doesn't mean that you walk around with a painted smile on your face, doing a jig, doing the river dance all over the place, saying, I'm happy, happy, happy. But it does mean there is a peace and a joy that goes throughout your whole being, because you know you are secure in God's control. This is what Jesus brings. Real change brings joy. Real change also can't be controlled. He gives us an example of this in a parable. He says, No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. Now, that sounds confusing, and we wonder what that's like, so let me explain it a little bit. It would be like this. Gentlemen, you just got a nice pair of khakis. A brand new pair of khakis. They're sharp. They're the no iron kind, so you don't have to do work with them. 
and you've got them, and your wife takes those khakis and she takes a knife and she cuts a big hole in it and she uses that to patch the old pair with the hole at the knee and says, I fixed your pants, honey. And you say, fixed them? We just had the new ones. Now they're ruined. No, look, these are your old ones with the hole. I patched the hole. Yeah, I see it. The old ones were blue. You, you put the khaki over the knee of the blue. Seriously? Oh, it's perfect. You know how much you love your old ones. You see, it's funny when it's with clothes. But what about if we try and do that with our lives? We try and keep our lives exactly as they are, but we know we've got some things we can improve upon. So we look and we see, well, if we change just this one thing, maybe life will be better. If we just tried to work harder at what we said, watch our mouths, put that patch on, put the mouth patch on. Or if we wanted to be more hospitable, so we take our lives exactly as they are and we put the patch of, come have lunch with me. You see, when Jesus brings change, it is not to have a patchwork quilt on our old life. It is to make us all anew. Because to do anything else is worthless. It's destructive. That's what Jesus says. Real change can't be controlled. We can't pick and choose what we want. It changes who we are in and out. Jesus says this too with the wineskins. You can't control what's new. You try and put new wine into old wineskins and they're going to burst. You couldn't take fermenting wine and put it in old, leathery, non-elastic skins because as it ferments, it will grow and grow and grow and explode. And then you won't be drinking wine. You'll be wearing wine. Real change can't be controlled. Then there's a third and final thing that Jesus tells us. He gives us a story, he gives us a parable, and then he gives us a proverb. He says, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. What he means here is this, there are certain kinds of people that don't even want to try. They see the new wine and someone says, you've got to try this new wine. No, old's good for me. I like it. No, you've really got to try this. It'll change the way you think about it. No. I like my old wine. It's bitter. I know exactly what it's like. You see, real change is also good. And we have to understand that. We have to want good. Because that's what Jesus is. It's that we must stop and think. We must stop thinking that our way, the old way, is better. We have to understand what Jesus has come to bring. To bring joy. To bring change. Jesus is calling you now. He has joy for you. Are you rejoicing in Jesus? Or are you just trying to patch the holes in your life? Are you just sitting back and saying, you know, listen, y'all can go crazy here about the Bible and Jesus and such, but not me. I know what I like. 
You see, when we have that kind of an attitude, when we're resistant to real change, when we're satisfied with misery and hopelessness and fear, that lets us know we're lost. Jesus has come for people who are lost. Jesus has come for people who are sick. Jesus has come to bring life and joy and goodness. And if He can bring that to someone like Levi and so radically change him that we don't even know him as Levi anymore, who is he? He's Matthew. The gift of God. Matthew. That same gift comes to you in the person of Jesus Christ. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who saves. Let's pray.